Well, this morning we're beginning a short three-week series on spiritual gifts, and we're calling it Gifted. Um, the, pat, the text that we're going to use for the next three weeks is Romans 12, verses 4 through 8. So if you want to mark that in your Bible, maybe read uh, along with us in your personal devotion time and meditate on that. But we're going to talk about spiritual gifts because uh, we do believe in the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and this is an interesting thing because I was talking, I had coffee with, uh, with one of you early this week and he was saying, you know, look, we sort of technically believe in the Holy Spirit because we believe in the Trinity, but, but I don't know how many times we talk about it. And maybe you come from a, a church background like that where you've said, yeah, the Holy Spirit, I've heard of him, um, but I'm not really sure what to do with him. Uh, my son, who's three, thanks to our wonderful children's ministry teachers who have him sing the doxology and teach them all of this stuff, he knows the phrase Holy Ghost. But unfortunately, he has me as a dad who, who also sometimes says, um, <laughs> Holy Cow, uh, sometimes as an expression of disbelief. And so he's kind of fused the two things together. And so once in a while, he'll walk around the house and say, Holy Ghost. And... Uh, <laughs> And I'm just not sure what to do with that. Um, my bad parenting is being exposed. Uh, but maybe, maybe for a lot of us you think, well, I know there is a Holy Ghost or a Holy Spirit, but it all sounds sort of strange. And this idea of being gifted uh, is a strange notion to begin with. When we use the, the, the word gifted as a description, when we describe someone as being very gifted, in our culture and in our society, it's kind of a way to say that someone is exceptional. It's a way of kind of saying, oh, well, they do that. They can do that so well because they are gifted. And maybe what we're not saying, that the silent part is, and I'm not. They're gifted and I'm not. And because they're gifted, they can do that. But not me. It's just poor little old me. I'm just an ordinary Joe, you know. And when we, we carry this thinking over when we think about spiritual gifts because we tend to think, okay, well, I guess it works the same way even in the church or even in God's kingdom where some people are extraordinarily gifted and then others are not. And so maybe we tend to think of spiritual gifts as another time when we exclude ourselves or another way to exclude ourselves. And we say, oh, those are the first class Christians. Those are the exceptional Christians. Those are the ones who are gifted and then there's me. So they're first class, I'm in coach, you know, or whatever it may be. And so it's just another way to feel excluded. Or you say, well, doggone it, I'm not going to let myself be excluded. So spiritual gifts is not another way to be excluded, but it's another way to improve yourself. And so then all of a sudden you say, well, I'm not the type of person to take this, you know, on the chin like that and just sort of be okay with it. No, if you're telling me there's people who are gifted, then I'm going to discover my gifts and I'm going to improve myself and I'm going to make myself better because doggone it, I'm gifted too. And so there's these two extremes that we tend towards when we think of being gifted. Either we say, oh, well, that's not me. Or we say, well, I wonder if it is. Maybe I can work at it. Maybe I can improve myself. Maybe I can develop myself a little bit more. What the scripture shows us about spiritual gifts is that neither of these poles are quite right. Neither of these extremes are quite right. It's not quite right to think of a spiritual gift as, oh, something they have and I don't. Nor is it the kind of thing where it's Christian self-betterment or Christian self-improvement where God says, hey, look, discover yourself and, and, and make yourself better. That's never the way the scripture talks about spiritual gifts. So how does it talk about spiritual gifts? I'm glad you asked. 
Romans 12, verse 3, actually, is where we'll start, if you'll turn there with me. Romans 12, verse 3. And this is what it says. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We have to stop right here and think about this image because it's so powerful. One of the commentaries I was reading says on that phrase where Paul says, we individually are members of one another. It's almost like he's saying, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, we're all members of one another. This image of a group of people being compared to the human body was an image used in political rhetoric of Paul's day. In fact, if you're familiar a little bit with the idea of a body politic or a, or a society, there were speeches that were given that compared a society to a body. So in one way you can say by Paul comparing the church to a body, he's saying in, in, in a very real way, he's saying, look, the people of God are an alternate society. Now we could do a whole sermon series on that. And actually after Easter, we will. <laughs> We're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' charter for what it looks like to live as a new society, something we ought to take more seriously than any other political document ever. And Paul is reminding these Christians, he's saying, look, you are a body. It's another way of saying you're an alternate society. You function within a society that has its own systems and laws and regulations and precedents, but you don't pay attention to that. You've been transformed in Christ. And then he goes on, he says, you're members of one another. Now this is such a strange phrase. Prepositions, prepositions, prepositions of one another. Uh, I'm, I'm just in the middle of beginning basic Greek in seminary, and our professor likes to, I don't know if he thinks this is inspiring or intimidating, but he handed out the other day these thick books written about the prepositions in the New Testament. <laughs> and I thought... I don't know about this long term for me. But the point is, prepositions make a big difference, don't they? And when we use the word membership or members, we usually think about belonging to something together, like a club. So how many of you are members of the YMCA? Or how many of you are members of you know, a gym? Or you're members of this thing? And you're members together of something else. But what we don't ever really talk about being members of one another. Like, what does it mean to really say that, Don, you belong to me and I belong to you and Ruth? What, what does it mean to really say that? How can you be members of each other, each of you individually members of one another? The only thing we can think of that's like that is the human body, where all the different parts belong to each other, which is why Paul uses that il illustration. One of the first things we've got to get right before we can even talk about gifts specifically is this. The church is a community formed by grace. The church is a community formed by grace. 
If you trace Paul's argument, this just little context here for Romans, Paul spends a lot of Romans 2 through 4 kind of telling his Jewish audience, saying, listen, it's not your Jewishness that makes you the people of God. And he says, and it's not your legalism or your, uh, your loyalty to traditions, specific traditions. It's not your loyalty to it that makes you the people of God. It's always been grace. And then he goes on in 9 through 11, he talks to the Gentiles who've now been brought in, and he says, now, listen, Gentiles, in case you think you did something special, it's not about you either. Uh Uh-oh. And then we get to chapter 12, and he says, listen, but all of you who are in Christ are now together this new kind of community. You're a community formed by grace. What I want to say to you this morning, church, is the most important thing about your story is the grace of God. The most important thing of your sto- about your story is not you and how, what you did, even how you failed or how you've messed up. The most important thing about your story is the grace of God. Now here's the other side of that coin. The most important thing about her story is the grace of God. The most important thing about his story is the grace of God. It means you can't say, all right, well, yes, you know, thank God for God's grace in my life. But did you hear what he did last week? So I'm sorry. What's the most important thing about his story? It's the grace of God. Shoot. So, I, so I'm a member of him and he's a member of me. And we together are part of this community formed and defined and marked by grace. Right. So there's no elevating one person over another person. No, that's why Paul said what he did in verse 3. Let no one think of himself more highly than he ought. And even before, before Paul can say those strong words, what does he says, say? He says, for by the grace of God that was given to me, let me say to you, don't think more highly of yourself. In other words, Paul's saying, most important thing about me is God's grace. And so, please, let the most important thing to you be God's grace. Now practically, it doesn't take long before a collection of Christians are together before we find ways of dividing between us and them. It doesn't take long before that happens. Now we can say, well, well you know, that happens in the world, sure, but, but, but we are the community formed by grace. We are the people to whom nothing should matter more than God's grace in our lives. Nothing should matter more than God's grace in your life and in my my life. So, if God's grace is the defining piece, what then could divide between us and them? Think about it. Think about the sadness in church history where all of a sudden a group of people says, well, yeah, that's nice. I mean, you've been saved by the grace of God too. But we have this too. We've got this and maybe some will boast of, we've got this long-standing lineage and heritage. And, tradi- and someone else will say, well, we have the full gospel. We're spirit-filled, and you're spirit-sprinkled. <laughs> you know? And all of a sudden, there's another line to say, us versus them. And Paul keeps reminding us, we can't talk about spiritual gifts until you realize The church is a community formed by grace. Every other dividing line gets struck down. You know, honestly, 
If you look at it closely, the, the, the things that you build up to divide between us versus them are often the things that we're using to justify ourselves, to make ourselves righteous. So you say, well, you know, I mean, I don't watch any TV or movies, and so I know that they do, and you know, okay. And, and really, the reason that thing is able to be a barrier is because you're using that thing to make you feel good about yourself. But if you really believe that the most important thing about you is God's grace, everything falls down, doesn't it? So I have no more good behavior or, 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 or alternate standards to sort of say, oh, I am special, look at me, I'm special. So, well, yeah, you, sure. But the most important thing about your life is God's grace. And therefore, this barrier begins to come down. Does that make sense? A good question to ask yourself when you find yourself beginning to do what Paul says not to do in verse 3, when you begin to think of yourself more highly than someone else, when you begin to pat yourself on the back for being such a good this or such a good that, I'm a great husband, I'm a great... You start to sort of say, I am so good at this, I do such a good job at that. Stop for a minute and say, wait a minute, have you lost sight that the most important thing about your life is the grace of God? Because if you do, you'll start to push yourself up, others down, and create these barriers. But when you remember, oh, if not for grace, where would I be? When you remember that, then all of a sudden you look at others and you say, hey, I, I, yes, it, it's not that you can't say that something's dysfunctional in someone else. It's not that you can't say, boy, I wish that... They, but, but, but the whole tone changes. All of a sudden you say, well, God... Let your grace abound to them. Help them. Help them rather than, well, I never did that. Well, that's just the choices. You know, instead of believing that the grace of God is what forms us. Another way you could say this is to say that what divides us is not stronger than what binds us. Whatever divides us as the people of God is not stronger than what binds us. And what binds us is the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Imagine, church, if we really believe that. Imagine if that starts to get inside of you, and then it's, it's, it's not this thing of, well, they came from this, or, they're, they're, or we're downtowners, or briar gators, or you know, whatever it is. And you, 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 all of a sudden you realize, okay, okay, wait, wait. The most important thing about their story, which is still in progress, is the grace of God. The most important thing about my story is the grace of God. We move on here to verse 6. And Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. The church is not just a community formed by grace, but the church is a community gifted by grace. Paul is playing a little bit with some words. Because the word for grace is charis and the word for gift is charismata. You don't have to know Greek to know that those two words kind of sound the same. And they are related words. In a way, Paul is saying that, look, the grace of God shows up in little graces that we all have been given, that we've all been gifted with. One of the commentaries said, look, the church is essentially a charismatic community. And what they mean by that is not swinging from the chandeliers, you know. What he meant by that is it's a, the church is a gifted community. The church, maybe another way to say it, is a graced people. 
You are a graced people. God's grace in your life shows up in special gifts, shows up in little graces, shows up in something that we've been spirit-empowered to do. A graced people. But see, when you think of spiritual gifts as being graced by God, that kind of takes it out of the realm of seeing spiritual gifts like some kind of uh, Christian version of the X-Men. You know? It's like, wow, you know, X-Men beginnings or whatever. You know, like, I'm, this is how Wolverine became... You know, what are you? I can shoot fire out of my eyes. What can you do? And, oh, I can do this. Like, Wow! And it's so easy to turn spiritual gifts inward into self-discovery and self-betterment and sort of, wow, look at me, I've discovered this about me. But when you use the grace language, it prevents all that, doesn't it? Because then all of a sudden you know that God's grace in my life has resulted in these gifts that are meant to be graces, expressions of God's grace. Which then leads us to this last thing here. Gifts, then, are how we express God's grace to others. Gifts, then, are not kind of the notch in your belt of like, well, look, I've got three of them I've already developed. How about you? Oh, only one? I'll pray for you, brother. (laughs) Gifts become the way that you express God's grace to someone else. Their graces given to you to reveal the God of grace. What if you began to think of it that way? Every result of God's, or the result of God's work in your life is that others begin to receive God from you. They begin to see God's grace through you. In fact, maybe this is a good way to kind of think about the difference between talents and spiritual gifts. Some say, well, what about talents? Aren't we, all, aren't we all born with specific, you know, God-given talents? So, well, I think maybe the difference between it is this. When someone is functioning in a spiritual gift, what you receive is God and His grace. When someone is relying on just their own talent, what you receive is them. What your getting is them have you ever drank out of a water bottle and you're like man that doesn't taste like water that tastes like the bottle and you're drinking and you're like i've got to throw this water bottle out and get a new one I mean, it's old or something it tastes like the orange juice that was in there before and now the water, like gross you try you thought you were going to get a refreshing drink of water but what you got was that plastic taste anybody yeah. That's a little bit what this is like. When, when a person is just sort of in their talent that they've developed and practiced, I think what you taste is them and all that they have and all that they are. But when someone all of a sudden has God's grace gifting them, what you taste is God. And you see, taste and see that He is God. You begin to say, hmm, I don't know. He said this thing that it was, the Lord was like speaking to me. The Lord said something to me through that. Maybe it's the worship team. I think our worship team is graced by God, don't you? They've got talent. They're all very, very talented. Sometimes I'm, 
in awe at how talented Stephen is with his guitar playing, you know. Couldn't in my dreams play acoustic guitar like that. Abby's voice, incredible. But, but there's something beyond all of that, isn't it? It's the grace of God's Spirit flowing through so that when they play and when they sing, what we're receiving is not a good band. What we're receiving is God. And His presence gets communicated to us. Do, do, you, do you sense that sometimes? Yeah. That's what it is. Grace, the gifts are, are given to us so that we can express God's grace to someone else. So you can take your talents to South Beach, LeBron James, <laughs> but the spiritual gifts are given so that we can show God's grace to one another. Imagine a community of people who, all of whom have been graced by God. This is the other thing, as I was digging through and studying this week, I thought, what are these guys going to say from context, from comparing it to other pastors that Paul's written? Are gifts kind of like, you know, like, well, only a few have them? And all of the, the things I read this week, without question, all said, no, the idea Paul is trying to communicate is the whole people of God have been graced with gifts. Everybody. Everybody. All of you. That means every one of you have a way that you can express God's grace through the Spirit's empowerment. Let me say that again. Every one of you can express God's grace to each other through the Spirit's empowerment. Every one of you can. That means there's no sitting on the sidelines in church. There's no kind of saying, well, that's them. and This, this is this idea of, remember, the body, it all works. We need it all to work together. Some's more visible, maybe, but, but sometimes the ones that are not visible are the most critical parts of the body. And we're all needed to express God's grace. So in the next eight or nine minutes, I want us to just look at one gift. At the end of verse 6, Paul says, If prophecy, then use it then in proportion to our faith. Now prophecy is fun to talk about because there's so much misunderstanding about it. And when we think about prophecy... Uh, it's the gift that everybody sort of wants because they remember Paul said, eagerly desire prophecy. And we'll get to that verse in a minute. In fact, Paul puts prophecy on top of his gifts list a couple times. And so you have the sense that Paul thinks this is, this is one of the ones that we can all kind of um, desire and, and, and express. But what is it? What is prophecy? I mean, is it like the world is ending March 21st? What, what, what is this? In the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet was a person, and Walter Brueggemann is a great theologian to read on this. His, his thin little book, The Prophetic Imagination, will make you think about Old Testament prophecy in a whole different way. Because do you know who the Bible calls the greatest prophet of the Old Testament? Anybody? Moses. It's like, Moses? Moses? But he didn't like predict the end times. Right. He didn't have any like weird visions of stuff flying and on fire. That's debatable. But it does make you rethink what a prophet is. Brueggemann tells us that the prophet in the Old Testament is one who sees a different picture of reality. You might even say the true picture of reality. He sees God on his throne reigning. The prophet is the one who sees a, a different vision than everybody else sees. And his vision is a true reality. 
And then based on that vision, he either criticizes or energizes. Now right away I say the word criticize and you're thinking, oh boy, that doesn't have any place, does it? No, it does. But do you know how the prophet criticizes? Through weeping. Through lament. One of the most... The best examples of this in the Old Testament is Jeremiah. Jeremiah weeps because he can see something that nobody else can see. And he says, oh God, why, how long will this people be stubborn? He sees a different picture and then he, he, he offers the word of critique through his lament. Or they energize through the picture of hope. That's Isaiah. Isaiah, as they're in exile, begins to say to them, look, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. This will not be the end. I can see something beyond this. You see that? So, well, Glenn, okay, so that's Old Testament prophet, right? That doesn't happen in the New Testament. Actually, isn't that what Jesus does? Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God is here. Talk about a picture of reality that nobody sees. (laughs) And he says, but the kingdom is not what you think it looks like. It looks like love and forgiveness. It looks like healing and restoration. It looks like sacrifice and death. Huh? And then Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, just like Jeremiah wept. And Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers its chickens, but you would not have it. But then Jesus also speaks of hope in a way that energizes that no one else sort of saw. He says, listen. I'm going to tear this temple down in three days and then rebuild it. You'll see the Son of Man ascending and descending. And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. We have no idea. In a lesser sense, Paul and Peter and the apostles consider themselves prophets. Why? Because they were predicting stuff? No, because they saw Jesus revealed. They said, look, this is it. We see how the scriptures reveal Jesus. We've seen how everything in our story has been leading up to this point. And so here it is. It's Jesus. And then there's this wonderful verse in the book of Revelation that says, the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. You ever heard that verse? I've heard it for so many years and just thought, what does that mean? Put all of this together. Prophecy... (laughs) is spirit-inspired speech that reveals Jesus. Ultimately, being able to say that Paul spoke prophetically or wrote prophetically is because they saw by the Spirit how all the Scriptures came together and Paul, when he wrote his letters, said, this is how it reveals Jesus. The prophetic gift is not this weird, kind of bizarre, like, oh, yes, okay, I've heard this. It's... It's as simple as saying, in what way will the Holy Spirit empower me to reveal Jesus? How can I reveal Jesus? Paul, let's, let's, let's get one more scripture here to put this together. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 and then verse 3. And Paul says, pursue love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. There you have it, church. Eagerly desire this. Please, please, please don't listen to these next three weeks and think, eh, I don't know, it's kind of weird. Especially that you may prophesy. Why, Paul? Verse 3. Because on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their building up, encouragement, and consolation. Maybe in your translation it says, to strengthen, to encourage, to comfort. Football fans, S-E-C. Strengthen, encourage, comfort. (laughs) Thanks, Matt Howard. 
<laughs> now, all of a sudden, let's put the sentence together. Prophecy is spirit-inspired speech that reveals Jesus. You got this next slide, guys? To people in such a way that they are strengthened, encouraged, or comforted. Let's sit on this for a moment. Prophecy, then, is spirit-inspired speech that reveals Jesus in such a way that people are strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. This is the reason I think Paul wants all believers to eagerly desire this. Because, <laughs> have you ever had someone encourage you and you, your response was, oh, no, no, I didn't need that today. Like, I'm super encouraged already. Like, I'm going to be over-encouraged. <laughs> you know, like, have you ever gone up to someone and tried to, like, you know, like, strengthen them and say, hey, man, you really do... And they, they responded to you with like, dude, what, what do you do? I'm so strong right now. Like, I do not need that. <laughs> I, I, think, I think Paul is saying eagerly desire. Of all the gifts, like one that we can all kind of work together because nobody can be strengthened, encouraged, or comforted enough. We all need spirit-inspired speech that reveals Jesus to us in such a way that we walk away Strengthened and encouraged and comforted. Honestly, it can happen in very simple ways. I, I think for all of you that, that are in um, families, fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, this is something that I think can happen in the daily rhythm of our lives as parents. I can think, I was thinking about this this week, my mom uh, just had a birthday a couple of days ago and it was one of those landmark birthdays. I won't say the age because, you know, she'll probably listen to this podcast tomorrow. Um, but it was a special birthday, and I, and I was, you know, I called her on FaceTime or Skype and was thanking her for all that she's meant to me over the years. And, and I just got choked up as I was talking to her because I said, Mom, you know, there, there have been certain moments in my life where you just said something to me, and it brought the life back into my lungs. There were moments when I just felt like, oh, I really you know, was disappointed and, and, uh, and, and, and failed to achieve this thing or didn't make that award or that this or that. And, and my mom came to me and would say, Glenn, this is what the Lord has in you. This is what's in you. And in that moment, it wasn't like, oh, Glenn, the Lord would say... It. It was, just, it was just a simple conversation. And I think that's what it can look like. The other day, Holly was reading your book, Sally, talking about motherhood and talking about discerning over your children and all that. And, and, and one of our kids was kind of going through, you know, as kids do, they're, they're kind of acting out sort of phase. And, and so Holly set, you know, your, your book down after reading it and, and saying, okay, well, just, is there something here that I can... And she just felt like, I just need to be attentive to, to this one today in a special way. And she just had the greatest day together. And by the end of it, like, you know, <laughs> this child is saying, oh, Mom, you, I, I love you, Mom, or all this stuff. And, and you just, you never realize what the little spirit-inspired moment will do to another person's life. You have no idea. When I was in college, we were getting ready to go on a missions trip, and I went 
on a retreat down to, um, uh, they took all the team leaders from ORU down to Juarez, Mexico to kind of do like ropes course. And, and uh, actually, we didn't do ropes. It was more like team bonding or team leader training. And I'll never forget this guy, Mark Steele, was talking to all of us as, as team leaders. And he said, listen, he said, uh, you're the only person whom you've never, who, let's see, you're the only one who doesn't know what you really look like. And he said, even physically, you know, you look at yourself in the mirror, you're seeing it in two dimensions. You've never seen yourself fully in 3D. And then he began to say, yeah, I wonder if this is like that even in our heart and in our character. We, we so often don't see what God has actually put in us or doing in us, right? And so when someone comes up to you and by the Spirit of God says, hey, I just want you to know, when you, when you, you are so great at doing this and this and this, and that is just so encouraging. Do you know what it does to a person? All of a sudden, it just, you've breathed life into them. See, the Spirit breathes into us and then breathes through us into someone else. And life begins to fill them. That's the Spirit's work. That's spiritual gifts. And so at that retreat, keep calling it a retreat. It was not a retreat. Uh, at that getaway in, 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 in this team leader time, we broke up in circles and began to just kind of speak to one another in the circle and say, you know what I see in you? I see this. And I said, I've taken this exercise and done this several times now with school worship teams, most recently with our missions team that went to Swazi. On our, our last night in Swaziland, we, we had this ball of yarn and we you know, tied it around one finger and you threw it to someone else and you said, here's what I've seen in you this week as we've been in Africa together. I've seen the Lord call this out of you and I've seen you love on children like I've never, you know. And then they, and you see people start to cry. That's when you know it's good. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, then, and then they wrap it around their finger and they throw the ball to someone else. And you connect this whole thing. Why? Well, what's so special about that? It's because we're beginning to, by the Spirit of God, strengthen and encourage and comfort. I want to say to you, church, that you'll never find a person who's not in need of this. And I, 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 even husbands and wives, you know, a simple, honey, I see you. I see the sacrifices you're making. I see what you're doing. And I just want you to know, you're amazing. The Spirit has inspired speech. It's revealed Jesus and His grace to them. And they walk away strengthened or encouraged or comforted. I know a couple guys who are roommates together. Every Sunday night, they pray over each other and they begin to say, hey, just want to say, I see this in you. I see this. I think that is awesome. John Wimber used to talk about us being naturally supernatural and supernaturally natural. And I think the idea that Wimber was trying to get with the vineyard movement was just to say, don't, don't keep these spiritual gifts into like stuff that's done on the platform. Don't keep it as the stuff that happens behind a microphone. Thus saith the Lord. Look, there's a place for that for sure. But Paul's writing this stuff to primarily, primarily believers who are getting together in homes. He's not envisioning people with big prophecy ministries. He's looking at ordinary bakers and butchers and farmers and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. And he's looking at ordinary people saying, yes, you and you and you and you, all, all, all of you. You have been graced. Now let the Spirit inspire you to show this grace to someone else. Amen? We're going to prepare to come to the table of the Lord and...
I can't think of a better thing to do because here's a little bit more word play. Charis, grace. Charisma, gift. Eucharist, thanksgiving. The grace of God at work in us leads us to thanksgiving and then causes, sends us out into the world to give these gifts away. In a way, all spiritual gifts are like, they're designed to be re-gifted. <laughs> Maybe, you know, you're like, you've got some gifts over Christmas, you're like, I've got to get, get ready to re-gift this. Spiritual gifts are all meant to be re-gifted, given away to show God's grace. 